Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. We're excited to welcome Dr. Reshma Ramachandran today. But first, we're always liking to check in on current or hot topics in health and healthcare. What, what do you have for us today, Harlan? Well, Howie, I wanted to bounce a couple of polls that came out recently and sort of get your, your thoughts on them. The first one I want to talk to you about was a Gallup poll that was recently released and talked about ratings of, you know, people within healthcare, like, you know, who's got a positive approval ratings and who doesn't. Of course, nurses come out on the top. That's no surprise. 82% saying they provide excellent or good medical care. I like that. But, you know, doctors are lagging. You know, it's like less than 70%, 69% of people say that. And if anything, it seems like it's going down. And then, of course, after doctors, you can see that uh, hospital emergency rooms, 47%. Pharmaceutical companies are now down to 33%. Health insurance companies, 31%. And nursing homes come in at the end of 25%. But what really bothered me was that, you know, doctors are at a much lower level than they had been, you know, historically. And, you know, I, I don't know, you know, this is part, I think, of about how people are thinking about medicine in general these days and the misinformation that's out there. But, you know, even on the honesty and ethics professions ratings, you know, nurses are, are high at 79 percent. This came out more than, a little more than a year ago from Gallup. But that uh, doctors uh, are pretty distant second at about 62 percent. So, you know, we're really seeing nurses maintaining a high rating. Of course, nurses are fantastic. But uh, other provider scores are shrinking and doctors are, are, are part of that. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a concern for me that, you know, what are we doing in medicine that's not instilling trust? Is it about this medical industrial complex? Is it that doctors really are just becoming pawns in this system now? And so that people are perceiving that and, and aren't really, you know, looking at, at doctors the way they used to. I know, what, what do you think about this? Then I'm going to talk to you about another, one other poll before we're done. But what do you think about this? So my my biggest concern about this is that it probably aligns, I, you, know, you, you might know the answer, but it probably aligns with politics a little bit. Not the doctor's politics, but the fact that individuals who have become identified with anti-vaccine, uh, who are anti, anti-COVID, so to speak, individuals, have become very anti-medicine. I mean, they're very much afraid of organized medicine and that, you know, a large part of the population is not. But any loss of faith in the institution of medicine is a bad thing because it makes everything much harder from preventive medicine to our public health programs to everything becomes much more difficult if uh, the public has lost faith in, in medicine. Yeah, and, and the physicians have dropped you know, 15 points, uh, you know, over this period. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's up to us in the profession to be thinking about how are we standing up for folks? How are we instilling trust? You know, what what is it that's going on as medicine's undergoing such dramatic change, both with technology and policy and, and just simply the organization of healthcare in this country with telemedicine or big companies getting involved? What are we doctors doing to stand up to help people understand that we're there for them, we're representing their best interests. And how are we deflecting concerns that they're, you know, this is being degraded? Um, I, I wanted to bounce one more off you to sure. see what you thought. So Kaiser Family Foundation came out with, with a poll. I think you may have uh, seen this. This is really about what's going on in the politics of America. And 
I thought what was interesting about it was to me that in, um, you know, when we're talking about this 2024 presidential election, of course, we're just out of the Iowa caucuses this week, that the affordability of health care comes in a close second to the sort of most important issue that people are thinking about. The number one was the rising cost of household expense. Of course, that's always something that's on people's mind. But the affordability of health care comes in a close second with eight in 10 voters saying it's very important to candidates to discuss on the campaign trail. And that was interesting to me. But also what was interesting to me is like everyone's talking about this issue with abortion, but only 4% say that abortion is the most important issue for the 2024 presidential candidates. And, you know, you've brought this up, you know, this question of whether or not the election's ultimately going to turn on single issues and whether a lot of people getting animated about an issue like abortion. And, and of course, it is very important. And there are a lot of people on both sides who are, who are very highly engaged with it. But it, it pales in comparison to the number of people who think that affordability is really the key thing uh, in, in the election. And again, you so involved in policy, you're thinking a lot about affordability. How, how do you place these things? And, and what, what does that surprise you at all? So the affordability issue goes way, way back, because I remember Zeke Emanuel right after the ACA passed said that if you look at what the most important feature of a health plan is for individuals, it's about affordability. It's not not whether they can see their doctor. It's not whether they can have the highest quality plan. It comes down to dollars. Dollars matter to people. And healthcare is a very real expense for individuals because whether you're on one drug or 10 drugs, every month you're doling out money for prescriptions. Every month you're doling out co-pays for doctors. And you're on the hook in many cases for a high deductible health plan or about a third of commercially insured individuals are on high deductible health plans, which means thousands of dollars right now, this time of year, January, February, March, even the high spending individuals have effectively no health insurance coverage until they spend a few thousand dollars to pay off the deductible. And that, I think, really resonates with people. I think that scares them that every January they have to think about, can they afford any medical bill that comes down their way? And as you know, we continue to spend enormously on healthcare. We spend what $4.4 trillion on healthcare at this point, uh, as of the most recent data point that we use, probably more for 2024. And that is everybody. That's more than you know $11,000 for every man, woman, and child in this country. I'll give you one other piece out of this Kaiser Family Foundation poll that I thought you might find interesting. On this show, we've talked a lot about the Medicaid enrollment provisions and how people are falling off of Medicaid. And we've talked a lot about, you know, and you're one of, I think, national experts on this, prescription drug provisions that were in the Inflation Reduction Act. We're going to be good to to ask Reshma at some point what she thinks about this, our upcoming guest. But, you know, when they ask people uh, about their awareness of this, the majority still say they've heard nothing or only a little about the unwinding of, of Medicaid. And uh, and and still people are largely, I think, uh, not really tuned into the Inflation Reduction Act either. So when, you know, these consequential things are going on, somehow the messages still aren't getting through to average Americans as they're, they're you know, thinking about candidates or they're, they're looking at these issues in the future. Does this surprise you? And if if not, you know, or either way, what do you think we should be doing about if it? If you're among the 15 million people who have been disenrolled from Medicaid, it affects you a lot. 
If you're not, it doesn't. And unfortunately, that's how we live. A, a large, a large number. I don't think it's majority, but a large number of those individuals are children and they don't vote. Um, and so we've got to do so much more to get those messages out there. And it does affect all of us, but it is a single issue issue for people that are particularly, you know, low income and being kicked off Medicaid nonetheless. Yeah. And the, and the benefit of the Inflation Reduction Act also people somehow aren't still not still yet. Not. They're going to start to feel it by the end of this year and the following year, but not yet. But I'm just saying, like, you know, people want to get credit for hard. controlling costs, affordability is on people's minds, but they're still not connecting with policies that are being implemented Yep, to address it. Yep. Hey, let's get on to our guests. This is a uh, I'm, I'm really excited to to hear Reshma's views. Yes. Especially with the Chevron case. Dr. Reshma Ramachandran is a family medicine physician, assistant professor of medicine and co-director and founder of the Yale Collaboration for Regulatory Rigor integrity, and transparency. Before coming to Yale, she worked at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health as research faculty for the Innovation and Design Enabling Access, or IDEA, IDEA initiative. Dr. Ramachandran is passionate about health equity and patient safety and has looked at how best to incentivize the use of new technologies in healthcare settings. Her work ranges from issues such as drug pricing and the political economy, all the way to prescription drug access and industrial health policy. Aside from her academic and research interests, she also serves as chair of the Doctors for America FDA Task Force and has worked previously on reducing pharmaceutical industry influence on health education as an American College of Medical Students Pharma-Free Fellow. She has testified in the U.S. Congress several times. Dr. Ramachandran completed her bachelor's degree and her medical degree at Brown University before completing a master's of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. She joined Yale's faculty after completing the National Clinical Scholar Fellowship here and obtaining her uh, MHS degree from Yale. And I want to, you know, today is an auspicious day. There is very important Supreme Court case that is being heard as we tape this. Um, and I'm going to let Harlan kick off with those questions. But before we get to that, I want to start off by just asking you what your journey was like to get to where you are now, because you went into college as a, or at least became a physics major in college. What, what were you thinking of as you graduated high school? Where did you grow up? What led to this? Yeah, uh, thanks, Mochelli and, and Harlan for having me on here. Um, I grew up in Miami, Florida, so I immigrated to the U.S. from, from India my dad was a postdoc, actually, at Ohio State University. Um, he was looking for jobs. University of Miami was offering a green card. So naturally, we went there, um, a lot of stability, and was able to stay in the country as a result. Um, so in Miami, I did a lot of science fair. My dad was a research scientist in a lab. I spent hours after school, usually in the lab with him. And he did work around um, looking at Ayurvedic treatments and their promise to be neoadjuvant um, therapies for cancer treatment. So some preclinical studies, basic science research, but then also clinical trial work. So can, can I just pause for one quick yeah. second? Because our audience may not know what Ayurvedic treatment is. And the only reason I know about Ayurvedic treatment is because 25 years ago, our current Surgeon General told me he wanted to figure out how to incorporate Ayurvedic treatment. So Miami physicians and scientists had a particular interest in this. Can you just tell us about that? And then... Yeah. For sure. Ayurveda is um, an ancient form of medicine that comes from India. 
Um, it's pretty, it's like thousands of years ago, but essentially looks at kind of natural compounds usually found in plants and their um, health protective uh, properties. So my dad was trying to apply science to this. So doing rigorous basic science and clinical trial research to actually see are the claims that are oftentimes found on supplement bottles actually founded? Could these actually be used in tandem with existing um, treatments, including FDA approved drugs to actually improve outcomes for patients? Excellent. And so, so you graduate there and you go directly to Brown and you immediately become a physics major from that? Yeah, well, I became a physics major because um, I was I, I liked physics when I was in high school and I was trying to figure out how to actually get back into the lab. And my goal at that time was to actually develop health technologies. I wanted to be the person that was going to bring products to market that would save lives. And I happened to take um, a physics um, introductory class and it was taught by Professor uh, Maris, who was 80 plus years old. And on the first day of class, he shot himself off of a rocket that he had made out of like a wagon and an engine. And the fact that an 80 year old man was doing that and talking about physics was just, that was enough for me. Um, so after That's that, awesome. you know, being able to take classes with a cast of characters like this became kind of the underlying uh, reason for me to kind of think about how to merge my interest in biology and biochemistry with physics to create health technologies. And, and just to finish that arc then, when did you become pre-med? And then I'll turn it over to Harlan, but I just want to understand how how the transition occurs. Yeah, uh, so I actually applied to Brown in the program for liberal medical education. So it was a straight from high school, eight year bachelor's of medical uh, school admission. It was nice, I didn't have to take the MCAT. I could kind of explore other areas, including physics, um, and also classes in like international development, history, other things like that. Um, what kind of made the transition though, I'll say, um, from physics to thinking about, you know, developing health technologies to thinking about the enabling environment for access to health technologies was during college for me. So between my junior and senior year, I had finished my like thesis requirements, had been in the lab, done all that work, and I got an opportunity to go to South Africa to do like quantitative like data entry work um, with um, some clinics with the Medical Research Council. So this was a government funded laboratory network and also health services research network that was actually looking at how to improve access to HIV medications. And it was there that I saw clinicians looking beyond like the exam room and kind of in the streets with their patients to protest the government, to protest policies, to protest laws. And then I saw them work alongside groups like Doctors Without Borders to actually talk about things like intellectual property and patents and drug pricing, which were concepts I had never really thought about before that even though I might be you know, thinking about developing health technologies, how to actually enable access to them down the road to patients was gonna be a whole other thing entirely. And this was a group of clinicians that was doing that. And so that was the inspiration for me to kind of make the pivot from bench research to thinking about how to actually create that enabling environment. You know, Howie, there's there's so many things that are remarkable, Reshma. I think the one thing that's always impressed me is like, she's so whip smart, but like actually knows how to get things done. And so she both takes a very rigorous approach to understanding practice and policy and trying to figure out how we can sort of bend this arc towards better healthcare with, with an ability to communicate it to those people who might be in a position to actually make change. So she's, she's able, whether she's on the Hill talking about federal policy or, or in state houses or sort of seeing like where the leverage points are. And, and Reshma, this is what I've really admired about your approach, which is it's very action oriented. So it's both scholarly, but it's, it's intended to try to affect practice and policy in ways that are consequential. So I, I, 
it's a pleasure to have you on today. You, so in this spirit, I mean, your work crosses so many different areas. And I, I sort of feel like you're entrepreneurial in your approach. I mean, you're sort of seeing where might there be an opportunity to leverage change in the system that would better serve the interests of, of people. And one area that you focused attention on is on this, this case that's before the Supreme Court, where you and Joe Ross actually uh, submitted a brief, uh, in, in, you know, where you were trying to influence the justices to, as they think about this case. So this is so-called uh, Chevron versus Natural Resources Defense Council, based on a 1984 ruling that was actually a, a ruling that was to give the EPA more authority to go against environmentalists and to institute policies that would uh, maybe on the people in the democratic side weren't, you know, not, mm -hmm. we're pushing, but that the administration was pushing back against and in the Reagan administration, right? In the Reagan administration. So what well, I think what's interesting now is that Democrats are, and on people on the left are largely pushing now for more authority of federal agencies so that they can make choices and decisions and institute rules based on congressional laws that may have some ambiguity to them. And, uh, and on the right, in the Republican side, people are saying that, no, you should have to go back to Congress, that the, actually there shouldn't be that much power invested within the, the federal agency. So, you know, this thing is being brought up now because of, of fishermen, you know, that they, they were sort of asked to do monitoring uh, of their fishing and they, they're pushing back and it's going in front of the Supreme Court. So what in the heck does this have to do with health care? Why does someone who's pushing health care policy get interested in, in something that for many listeners might seem a little esoteric and and sort of inside baseball around what the federal agencies are doing? Why? Why? What is it that provoked you to, mm -hmm. to write about it? And why do you think it's important? Yeah, th these two cases that are being heard before the Supreme Court today, you know, on their face, as you mentioned, are, are not healthcare related. But the implications on federal agencies and public health agencies like the FDA um, is pretty profound. So when we had first heard about these cases um, and kind of understanding what Chevron deference is, this idea that if the law is unclear or if it's silent on an issue, um, there would be deference given to federal agencies because they have expertise that Congress has um, uh, authorized, that has, you know, in their creation, these agencies have hired a bunch of sometimes clinicians in the case of the FDA, scientists, others who can actually interpret the law to actually apply it for regulation and develop regulations as a result. And so uh, historically, there's been several court cases around this where agencies have been determined to have this sort of deference to create regulations based on their scientific expertise. This case challenges that, basically it would get rid of Chevron deference and the idea that if the law is silent or ambiguous on a matter, that federal agencies cannot interpret the law to in creating regulations. And the FDA is chock full of regulations related to drugs and devices, which is what our brief was focused on, but also you know, a, a slew of other products, including food and tobacco. So let me, just a quick follow-up on this. And, you know, there was a nice piece in the New York Times today that sort of laid out some of some of this at a high level. But but one quote that came from this article that Adam Liptak reported on in the New York Times was from the Solicitor General Elizabeth uh, Prilogar, I think, hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, where she said, overruling Chevron, which, which you're arguing against, don't overrule mm -hmm. Chevron, right? Allow deference to the agencies, allow the agencies to interpret the laws. So overruling Chevron, she said, would be a convulsive shock to the legal system. 
Would it be a convulsive shock to healthcare? And can you be specific about even an example yeah. of, of what do you what do you fear might occur if they overrule Chevron? Yeah, um, definitely. There is this would have huge ramifications, and I'll be specific to the FDA. And actually, a, an example that Justice Jackson um, actually mentioned in her questioning of um, the, the on the plaintiff side, um, she actually it was actually a similar argument to what we brought up in our amicus brief specifically. So it was around this idea of in the law, the standard for drug approval or new drug approvals is adequate and well-controlled investigations. And the FDA has interpreted this. Um, they've actually outlined what this might mean through regulation. They had a public um, notice and comment period, and then they refined this and they put out regulations around this. If you get rid of Chevron deference, there could be a challenge that is raised by a sponsor, for instance, that has a new drug that they want to be approved saying that FDA's interpretation of the evidence or what is adequate and well-controlled investigations is actually incorrect uh, under without Chevron deference. And in fact, you know, Congress needs to actually specify this um, more clearly to actually entail or actually detail what that actually means. And so this could have huge ramifications and also slow down FDA's ability to actually approve drugs in a timely manner. So what would that mean if, if the... For example, a pharmaceutical company said, you guys are interpreting what Congress said. It's ambiguous what they said. And then Congress, of course, is going to take years to clarify or act on it if they ever do. So what happens in that period where there's no clear guidance? So this could call to a judge. Um, so a judge can actually will use his expertise, which may not be the same as the scientific expertise you would expect at the FDA which oftentimes includes clinicians, biostatisticians, a whole team of different folks that looks at the evidence to determine if the, the drug is safe and effective to be approved. And so the idea that that sort of scientific expertise would now be in the hands of a judge and because of various other forces, political motivations, because of kind of the evidence and their understanding of it could make a decision that might be contrary to public health. And so that was that's the concern that we had, that moving away from Chevron deference would put this in the hands of judges and there could be confusion, especially if there's interpretation across different judges about what the standard actually is. And that could slow down innovation in many ways. The FDA's ability to actually justify and use their scientific expertise to actually make an approval decision would be slowed down because they'd have to have additional resources to actually justify why they're doing this. And on top of that, you know, might be tied up in litigation and courts and that sort of timing uh, would slow down any sort of approvals in the future. I want to take a slightly contrarian view on this and just have you come back a little bit um, because Harlan's correct, of course, that uh, this is sort of a Republican Democrat issue in general and that, you know, the administrative state as the Republicans typically conservatives typically talk about it, which is to say that the executive branch is very powerful and perhaps too powerful is something that Republicans have wanted to undo. Uh, and the appointment of, I think, Neil Gorsuch in particular is felt to be a step in that direction. However, there are times when the Republicans are in control of the executive branch and Democrats become quite concerned that executive branch has overreach, whether it has to do with uh, immigration policy or health policy. And I'm just wondering, not, not to say that you should change your opinion in aggregate, but do you see the value at all in favoring legislation rather than regulation in these situations. And I wonder, is it possible that eliminating Chevron deference could force us 
to have to legislate more, which might be at least a step in that direction. Yeah, that's definitely the argument that I heard from the plaintiffs during the oral arguments today, that Chevron has given excuse to Congress to not legislate on certain, ma- on certain yeah. matters. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because we engage in both spaces. We oftentimes are critical of the FDA in terms yeah. of their regulatory decision making. And we do go to Congress to talk about reforms um, at the FDA. This is you know, in the past couple of years around accelerated approval. We've been quite active with our group here at Yale around this. And I think what it ultimately comes down to is, you know, what is the larger kind of concern here? You know, should scientific expertise be in the hands of the FDA, especially if we think of the FDA as an institution that's supposed to represent independent regulatory decision making that is taking into account all the data at the participant level and making decisions around that. That's the FDA that we want. We might not have the FDA that that we have right now. Like it's not might not be the perfect FDA, but the idea of kind of putting that in the hands of Congress to make those sort of detailed kind of scientific sort of uh, nuance or decisions about individual approvals, about in drugs that they haven't even imagined coming down the pipeline in 10, 20 or 30 years seems to be a misstep uh, in, in our opinion. And especially in looking at what the FDA is intended to do to actually put together a scientific expertise to meet the challenges of not just today, but also the challenges of tomorrow, because they're so involved in the drug development process with sponsors along the way. What, one last quick question. Any thoughts on whether we're just not going to let you go? No, no. Any <laughs> thoughts on whether the Inflation Reduction Act is stymied at all in the courts? Because that also—that's one of my concerns for this year. Yeah, um, I mean, I think it looks that's in terms of where the courts seem to be going on the Inflation Reduction Act. There's been like ten cases right now that are challenging the drug pricing negotiation provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act, and we have folks here at Yale Law School, including many of our colleagues, that have written amicus briefs around this to challenge what the pharmaceutical companies are saying um, in terms of the negotiations infringing upon their ability to recoup profits and whatnot. Um, I think, uh, you know, the cases obviously are taking up time in terms of slowing down potentially the process, but we see, we've, we're seeing some like good signs, some glimpses of hope that judges are kind of rebutting and pushing off the arguments made by the pharmaceutical industry, saying that you know, they're not sound, that they don't have a constitutional right to actually, you know, participate um, in Medicare and Medicaid um, under negotiation, um, uh, you know, provisions. So those sorts of decisions that are coming out from the courts give me hope that hopefully this won't be a, won't be a prolonged process and this won't slow Medicare and Medicaid down in terms of implementing the provisions. Um, we're seeing implementation happening, you know, now. It's been started last year. Um, they've been hiring folks to be able to make sure this goes into place. And I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that this is going to go full steam ahead. Well, you give me hope. So thank you so much for just being the advocate and the scholar, uh, the clinician, and all that you are in helping advance healthcare in this country. Yeah, what a pleasure to work with you. We're so lucky to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, what's on your mind this week? Let's pivot to your side. Yes, I've been waiting to talk about this for a few weeks, but I think right now it's a good moment to do it. There's good news and bad news on the measles front. Uh, domestically in particular. On the one hand, we have not actually had a major measles outbreak in in at least four years. But on the other hand, we have the beginnings of one in Philadelphia right now. And that that becomes a little bit surprising for us because Philadelphia actually is relatively well vaccinated. The state of Pennsylvania is relatively well vaccinated. So this outbreak, and it's among the unvaccinated, is seemingly going to be contained, or at least I hope it will. 
But if even one person from that area leaves that area and goes to an area that is under-vaccinated, we could quickly have a problem on our hands because measles is especially infectious. It requires about 95% of a community to be immune in order to protect the herd, as we call it. Um, and that means an outbreak cannot occur in that community, but can occur in one that's less vaccinated. Measles is also unfamiliar to most of us right now. One in a thousand cases results in death. Two in a thousand result in brain swelling or encephalitis. One in 10 is hospitalized, often with pneumonia. There's long-term consequences, including neurologic consequences. And the vaccine, it's part of the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, MMR, is actually highly effective and extremely low risk, right? There should be no controversy about this. The vaccine is given at the ages of about 12 to 15 months and then four to six years. And, and rarely have we ever suggested boosters for certain populations. So where are we now? You got the nine cases in Philadelphia. And then as of a few days ago, we learned that an international traveler who passed through Dulles Airport on the 3rd and then showed up again at Reagan Airport on the 4th, was infectious, did have measles, and presumably was infectious. Now, if he or she interacted with all vaccinated people, we're fine. But if even one or two travelers was unvaccinated, becomes exposed, right around today, the day that we're taping this right now, we should start to see some infections starting in whatever community those people were traveling to. And that starts to become a much a much more serious risk. So I think we have to really back to what you talked about on the intro, that faith in science and medicine in institutions is falling. Uh, we have data that suggests it's falling faster among people who identify as Republicans. This is not really a political issue, except for the fact that people who identify as GOP are much more likely to believe that children should not be forced to be vaccinated. This was not true in the past. Democrats, if anything, were, were more often to be in this group. Now it's far, far more a politicized GOP issue. And I think just as you talked about it on the intro, we need to figure out not just how to make public health interventions work, but we need to build up confidence among individuals in those institutions. We need to redouble our efforts to rely on science, to communicate science well, to change our opinions about things when the data changes, and to be able to get the public's trust back to where it was. You know, I told you I was going to ask you a very pragmatic question, because I think many listeners might be wondering about this. If they were vaccinated in childhood and now have heard about maybe potential exposures, should they be worried that they're no longer protected against measles? Everything I've read. So I did a little bit of reading because you and I talk about these things. I did a little bit of reading. Every bit of evidence is that this is a very, very durable vaccine. Having said that, if there was a large outbreak, uh, the CDC likely would come out. They haven't done this yet, but they would likely would come out with a recommendation that certain populations may consider getting a booster shot at this point. But there's no evidence. We're not finding cases in people who've been previously vaccinated. We're seeing cases only in the unvaccinated at this moment. I, I will say for our listeners, we always talk about measles and people don't hear as much about mumps or rubella. And the reason is that there's a greater level of herd immunity at lower levels of vaccination for those. So this is always going to be the canary in the coal mine. You're always going to see measles first. 
if we do get a massive outbreak of measles, I have no doubt that we'll start to see outbreaks of mumps and we will see outbreaks of rubella and the congenital rubella syndrome that follows from that. Oh my God, I remember having mumps when I was a kid. The, um, but the thing about measles, just again, people listening, it's, it's probably the most infectious virus that there is. It's the, it's the benchmark of the most infectious virus. Exactly. The reason I believe that this is a durable vaccine is because we haven't seen outbreaks among vaccinated people before. Even when we've seen outbreaks in certain communities in the country, they're always being manifest in people exactly. who aren't vaccinated. So in, among that group, there are older individuals who, who never seem to come down, even though they were only vaccinated in childhood. Exactly right. And, and by the way, like just to give us our listeners a little optimism here, 2022, we had 121 measles cases, 2021, 49, 2020, because of the pandemic, probably we only had 13. But the year before that, we had 1,274 measles cases in this country. So we have had bigger outbreaks. We're hoping to avoid that now. And I hope that in six months, we'll come back and we'll say this was a tiny blip. Yeah, my, I think my big concern is that the pandemic has given fuel to this anti-vax movement. So it's not just about don't take the COVID vaccine, but it's now introduced all this doubt about all the vaccines. It was always simmering, but but this really, I think, is flared. You got a presidential candidate who's on the stump talking about these issues, right. not just about COVID vaccine, but about all vaccines, enrolling us back to a sort of pre-vaccine era for many people. It's so we have to keep our eye, eye on this. But again, it does get to our credibility as, as in, in public health, as physicians, and, and really helping people understand the balance. And then the question will be, will society weigh in with saying that we expect people to be vaccinated? Or, you know, is it going to continue to be a criterion for schools or will it change? People homeschool more because they don't want to do it. It's complicated. I agree. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, please email us at health.veritas at yale.edu or respond to our links on LinkedIn uh, or email us uh, individually, or we're still on Twitter, which was also called X. <laughs> and we are using LinkedIn and others more, but a lot. I, I have trouble breaking up with uh, with Twitter. I know. Uh, I still call it that. So I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E, though I'm posting a lot less than I used to. That's HMK Yale. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. Again, you can email us, but you can also reach out to us at the School of Management. You can look into our more innovative programs, including the executive MBA program at the School of Management. And our link there is som.yale.edu slash EMBA. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management and the Yale School of Public Health. Thanks to our researchers, Ines Gill and Sophia Stone and our producer, Miranda Schaefer. They are amazing. They are. We're deeply appreciative of everything that they do. Thank you. And talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon. Yeah.